We're continuing in our book study of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. That's part of our summer reading list series that we're in. And last week we started things off uh, by looking at Jesus as a better word, as a better message. And we said that he is the ultimate message, the ultimate revelation of all that God is. That God used different people throughout centuries, actually uh, over a period of about 1,500 years. God used uh, prophets and priests and different authors of the Old Testament to communicate about himself to his people. But even though it was his pure word, it was all kind of segmented. Uh, It wasn't a complete picture. It was here a little bit, there a little bit, building on each other. And then Jesus came as the fulfillment of all of those writings and all of those prophecies and all of those proclamations. And he is the final and full revelation of all that God is. Today, we're going to continue looking at this exalted, superior Savior. And we're going to be talking about the fact that Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better priest. I think we all understand the concept of a priest, that they stand between God and man, as it were, and they appeal to God on behalf of the people they represent. They intercede for them, and that's seen all throughout uh, the Old Testament, all throughout the Jewish history. And for any Jewish person, the priesthood was one of the most important aspects of their whole culture, their entire identity. That's why it was so challenging for the people that the writer of Hebrews wrote to to make the leap from no longer relying on and trusting in and putting all their confidence in the priesthood because of one final priest, the great high priest Jesus. It was hard for them to let go of what was thousands of years of looking to a human priest to do the work that they needed done. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, the priesthood was good. It was important. But now you need to shift your focus and attention away from the old priesthood and focus exclusively on the supreme priest, Jesus Christ. Because he is the fulfillment of all of those other priests and all that they attempted to be and attempted to do, but could never do perfectly, could never be completely, Jesus is. That's what we're going to be looking at today, and I hope uh, you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I invite you to look with me at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed Through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus here, who is being called a great high priest, that's the only time that that's ever been mentioned for anyone. No other high priest was ever called the great high priest. By Jesus having that title, the author is trying to communicate, Jesus is the ultimate Jesus is the supreme. There's no one higher, no one better. As good as many of the priests that came before Jesus were, and there were some bad ones too, but there were a lot of good. And as good as those priests were, as important as their work was, they didn't come close 
to who and what Jesus is. They're saying, he's saying Jesus is the, the supreme priest. He, he is the absolute best of any of the other priests all throughout our history. And we, we see a little bit about what makes him so supreme, so far above all the others. He says, this great high priest has passed through the heavens. He didn't say he passed away to the heavens. We, we all have loved ones uh, that that is true of, uh, myself included. We, we know what it is to have a loved one pass away from this life. And if they are in Christ, we, we know that they pass away from here to heaven. But that's not what's going on here. This is Jesus passing through the heavens, like cascading through each level. And there's just an awesome connection here that I don't want you to to miss or be unaware of. In the earthly priesthood, no matter who it was, all through the centuries, the high priest would one time a year enter into the most holy place. It was called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple. And that's where they would offer the atonement for the entire nation of Israel. It was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. One time a year they were allowed to go into the the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. But to get there, they had to pass through a couple different layers. They took the, the blood, they took the sacrifice, and they entered a door into the outer court. And this was true of the tabernacle in the wilderness and true of the temple. They would enter through the outer court, and they'd go through that. Then they'd go through another door, which would lead them into the holy place. But then, they weren't done yet. They entered through that door into the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence in all of His glory was. And it's there that they would pour out the blood that was a sacrifice, an atonement offering for all the sins of the people, And for themselves. They had to offer a sacrifice for them too. For themselves. They weren't perfect. No matter how good they were at being a priest. No matter how honored they were. And it was an honorable work. It was an honorable honorable position. To be chosen as high priest was a great, great honor. To be able to offer this sacrifice. To enter into the very presence of God. Once a year. It was incredible. But they weren't perfect. So they offered the sacrifice for themselves. And for all their people. They poured it out, and then they would turn around and leave because they couldn't stay. They'd have to go back the way they came until next year. And don't you see this incredible connection? So there's the earthly priest, which was a picture of the ultimate priest to come, Jesus Christ. They're going through these three different levels to get to where the sacrifice needed to be made. Here's Jesus, though, as comparison and as fulfillment. And he, too, goes through three different barriers, as it were. He, when he passed through the heavens, Jesus would have passed through the first heaven. That's, that's like our sky and our atmosphere. Then he would have passed through the second heavens, which is space, you know, the, the solar system, galaxies. Then he would have passed into the third heaven where God dwells. And Jesus would have gone right up into that inner court where God the Father sat enthroned. And he walked right up to the throne. And right next to it is the mercy seat. And there, Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, poured out 
not just the blood of an animal as had been done for centuries before, but his very blood, his perfect, innocent, holy blood. He poured that out on the mercy seat for you and for me, and then he sat down. And the reason he sat down is because the sacrificial system and the sacrificial work did not need to be done anymore. He fulfilled and completed it all. He didn't have to leave the courtroom. He didn't have to go back through the other heavens because he wasn't sufficient enough. No, the father looked at his son and said, Well done, my beloved son. This is all sufficient for eternity. Have a seat. And in light of that, this verse says, since we have this great high priest who has done that, has passed through each of the heavens that no one else could go through, unless they were divine, unless they were God, they couldn't do that. Unless they were God, they couldn't sit at the right hand of the majesty on high that is the Father, sharing His authority, sharing His glory, because God clearly says all through His word, I will share my glory with no one, and as in no other created being. No person can share my glory, but he's able to share it with his son. He's able to share his rule and his reign and his power and his majesty with the son because his son is also very God. And since we have this kind of high priest, Jesus, the son of God, co-equal with the father, co-eternal with him, fully divine, the God man, here's what the writer says. In light of all that, look at the last part of verse 14. Let us hold fast our confession. What confession? Well, he's writing to believers here. And so for us, the same challenge is, is needed. The same reminder, the same encouragement. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus Christ as being the only Lord and the only Savior of your life. If you've confessed that already at some point in your life, hold fast to that confession. Because he is worthy and because he is able to keep your confession intact. We just saw six individuals who had already confessed at some point in their lives, Jesus, you are the only Lord and the only Savior, and you're the one I need. I give you my life. And what we saw today was the public declaration of that already having taken place. And just as I encourage them to hold fast to that confession, I encourage all of us, just as the writer here did to his original readers. Hold fast to your confession, not based on anything you know or, or you have or you can do, not based on any outside circumstance, not based on the right kind of emotion, not based on everything going right for you. That's not what we base our confession, our hope, our faith, and our trust in. No, we base all of it on who and what Jesus is and who, who we will never be but are made because of him in the sight of God our Father. And then he goes on, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews, as the name of the book implies, was writing primarily to the Jewish believers. But he was also writing to Jewish believers who were very much part of a Greek culture. 
in a Greek world, with Greek philosophy. And just as it would be for us, and as it is with us, we are, we are affected by our culture, we're impacted by the culture that we live in, and therein lies a lot of the struggle for us, right? Uh, not being too much like the culture, not being assimilated into the culture, being part of it but not of it, right? And the same was true for, for these people. And the writer of Hebrews knows that he's speaking into a very Greek culture, and a very uh, a Jewish culture that's very influenced by Greek culture and thought. And the Greeks believed that any god, any deity, was not only far removed from people, but that they were incapable and unwilling of ever sympathizing with them, ever identifying with them. In fact, the Greeks used a word to describe the way uh, all of their deities related to mankind, and it's where we get our word apathy. They believed that if there was truly a deity, they just wouldn't care. They would have no feeling or compassion. They wouldn't be able or willing to identify with the creature. And what the writer of Hebrews here is, is doing is providing a beautiful and necessary contrast He's saying, this, this high priest that we have, which I've already told you is not just a high priest like you're used to seeing. He is a divine high priest. He is eternal. This God, who is also our high priest, is not like these other false gods and these mythological gods that have no ability to identify with you. This divine high priest absolutely can and does identify with you. He has been tempted in all regards, in all aspects, in every way possible, just like you and me. The difference is, he didn't succumb to it. He didn't give in to it. He didn't sin. And part of what makes Jesus so able to identify with our own temptation and with our weakness is because he never gave in. He experience the full brunt, the full weight of all of temptation, of all of the weakness that we know. Hang, hang with me for a second. When you and I are tempted, we might hold out for a while, right? We, we may know, okay, whatever this is that I'm being tempted to that is sin, whatever it may be, I mean, you, you fill in the blank yourself, Uh, I know this is not right. I know this is not what God has called me to. I know this will not please him. This will not honor him. I know I'm called to more than this. And so, you know, we might struggle for a bit. We might try to resist. And and we we may fall to our knees in prayer and, and ask for help. And sometimes we're victorious in that. Praise God. And how beautiful and sweet it is to... To know what it is to withstand temptation and to come out victorious. But when that happens, man, are you not exhausted? Doesn't just take it out of you? It's far easier, not better, but far easier to stop fighting, right? And to just go with the current instead of going against the current of the temptation that you're faced with. And unfortunately, we all know that from time to time, that's exactly what we do. We give in to the temptation. And in that moment, the agony and the pressure and the the, the battle and the weariness of, of fighting and resisting that temptation, it's subsided, right? We no longer feel the pull and the weight and the stress of going against that temptation because we've gone, we've just given into it. We've just sat back and it's now like a lazy river. 
instead of like a class four rapid. Jesus, though, never once gave in to the temptation, which means, as it is for us, that temptation, whatever it was, I mean, it, the, the scripture here says he was tempted in all regards. So there's no, no area of temptation that he didn't walk through, that he didn't experience and didn't endure. But he felt the full weight of it all. It just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger from the enemy until the enemy finally just gave up. And he knew he wasn't going to get anything over on the Son of God. You know, it's kind of like uh, the game of chicken, right? Someone's going to have to turn away at some point. That's how, I mean, that's a, a poor illustration, but it's the best really we can do, I think, to identify with what is being said. It means that as hard as our temptation is, we don't understand what it is to resist completely and to feel the, the entire weight and power of temptation at its highest because we never make it that long. None of us. We never last that long to experience temptation in its full strength. Jesus did. And he never gave in. Which is why he's able not only to understand where we're coming from better than we ever could, but he's also able to give us his victory as our high priest. And that's what he does. As a, in light of that, as a result of, of that all being true, verse 16 tells us this. Let us then, see, in, in light of all that was just said, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The throne of grace. We know that, that our God sits enthroned and has for all of eternity. But outside of Christ, the only throne that we can know that God sits on, the only throne we can ever experience, the only throne we will ever be before in the presence of God, apart from Christ, is a throne of judgment. Throne of wrath. Rightly deserved. But see, because of Christ and in Him, if we come to Him as our great high priest, as if we come to Him as the only Savior we will ever find, then we have the confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him, to draw near to not a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. That we may receive mercy, that's not getting what we deserve. Mercy is, is not getting what you so rightly deserve. You know, uh, your, your child does something, they, they break your rule, they, they do something worthy of punishment, you would be right to punish them, but in, a, in that moment you decide, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have compassion, I'm going to show them mercy, and you don't give them the punishment that they deserve. That's mercy. That we may receive mercy and find grace, that's getting what we could never deserve or rightfully have. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you never deserve. And we find both at this amazing throne of grace. All because of Jesus. And it says that we, we can come confidently. That's not arrogantly. That's not, that's not with pride. That's with assurance in the person and work of Jesus. That's believing that He is enough. That's standing on His merit. Totally rejecting any self-effort. And saying, because Jesus is worthy, and because his work was enough, I, I can now with confidence 
go before this throne and look at what it says we can, we can find, not just mercy and grace, but we can find help in time of need. And my friends, isn't that all the time? Is there ever a time where we are not in need of grace and mercy from our God? No, never going to be a time where that's, that's true. No, thanks, I've got enough mercy. I'm good. No, I've gotten enough grace to last me a while. I'm good, God. No, every minute we are in need of the mercies and grace of our God. And we have it, believer. Believer, you have that. Everything you need in your Christian life, you have in the person and work of Christ as not just your Savior, but your great high priest. Now, just because Jesus' sacrificial work in his role as the atoning sacrifice for us was finished, which it was, and, and he sat down, that does not mean that his ministry on our behalf was done. That doesn't mean that his role as priest stopped. His role as the substitutionary sacrifice, his role as the lamb, that was finished, and he didn't need to keep offering sacrifices. The one sacrifice he made on the cross was sufficient for all of eternity. That's why he sat down on that. But his ministry as great high priest, well, that continues. Look with me at Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Verse 23 is where we'll start. Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests, remember back in in all of Jewish history, he's writing to, to the Jewish believers here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So no matter how good they were, no matter how good at, the, at their job they were, nobody was able to do that forever because they were human. And so no matter how they operated with integrity in their office, there was one disqualifying factor that kept them from continuing. Death. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. And here's a beautiful contrast coming up. Verse 24. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That means all that he is as high priest for us, all that he alone can provide, that that all the other people before were just pictures of, that he is the ultimate fulfillment of, that he is the ultimate provision of, that continues forever. He continues to serve on our behalf. He continues to minister on our behalf. He continues to stand in the presence of the Father on our behalf. Hallelujah for that. Right? Verse 25, because he continues forever, look at what it says. Consequently, he is able... Oh, don't miss this. Do not miss this part. He is able to save to the uttermost... Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That, church, is your hope. That's why we're able to continue on in this 
life. That's why we're able to keep pressing on as hard as it is. That's why we're able to not depend on circumstances and emotions for us to find our hope and our confidence. That's why we we have no need to fear losing the salvation that we've been given when we come to Christ. It's not because we're just that good. It's not because we're now suddenly able to keep ourselves in salvation. No. We were never able to save ourselves, and we're never able to keep ourselves saved. The reason that we have any type of eternal security in our standing before God, in our right relationship with Him, in knowing that heaven is always going to be our home is all because Jesus Christ, our Savior and our great high priest, ever lives to make intercession and saves to the uttermost. That means there's nothing left out of His saving work. There's nothing left out of His saving power. As great as we are at sinning, He will always be an infinitely greater Savior. And His power to save and keep saved is unparalleled and unaltered. It's full, it's complete, it's rich, and it's there for us. And he ever lives to make intercession, which we all need. Because the scripture also clearly lets us know that we have a pretty powerful prosecuting attorney. We have an accuser of all the brethren named Satan. And not only does he tempt us towards sin. Little caveat though, little asterisk. Sometimes he doesn't have to work very hard. We do his work for him, right? But that doesn't mean he's not active in tempting us and enticing us towards sin. He is. He does. And so not only does he do that, but then when we fall for his trap, when the trap is sprung, we're, we're there in the cage of, of our failure and of our sin, having given in to temptation rather than giving in to the power of the Spirit... He then turns, he rubs his hands, you know, I would imagine, and he then turns to God the Father and says, look, (laughs) look, they did it. They sinned before you. They rebelled against you. They despised the gift of your son and his sacrifice. They didn't avail themselves of the power of your spirit. They broke your law. They broke your commands. They deserve judgment. They deserve hell. And God the Father, being just, has to say, you're right. You're right, they did. They did all that you said. And they are guilty. You're right. But thankfully, the verdict doesn't end there. Because we have a great high priest standing at the right hand of the Father... Whoever lives to intercede for us. And every time the accuser points to our sin, our Savior and High Priest points to his nail prints and the wound on his side. And he says, yes, they are guilty, but I paid for all of their guilt on the cross. And they received me and my work for themselves. They are in me. They are covered by my blood forever. Put it all on my account. And the Father says, done. And Satan is silenced. 
Now that does not mean we have just this license and excuse to keep on sinning. Paul says that in Romans. No, God forbid, may that never be. We don't sin because we have grace and just so grace can just keep increasing. No, we present ourselves as dead to sin and alive to righteousness in light of what we have in Christ. But isn't it comforting to know that when we fail, which is going to be often until we're called home and given a new body and a new identity and and taken out of the ability to sin, which will be a great day, what a great day that will be. But until that day, isn't it comforting to know that when you and I, from time to time, still choose sin, we still revert back to the old nature, that we're not just done and thrown away from the Father, that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, Jesus Christ the ever-living one that ever lives to plead for you and me. Isn't that great? Friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the gospel summed up in these verses right here. And because of that, And with all of that being said, the question is, okay, but what does all this mean practically? What does all this mean for us, knowing that Jesus fulfilled all of the the office and requirements of the priesthood? That he, he completed what none of them were ever able to really complete. Knowing that he is the perfect advocate and the, the perfect intercessory for us. Well, what this all means is that you and I have no need of any earthly priest. We don't have to go to a confession booth. We have no need of someone that we address as Father and say, forgive me for I have sinned. We have no need to pray to the mother of Jesus or any of these great men and women of faith that have gone before us like Hebrews 11 talks about this great hall of faith that we can go down aisle after aisle and corridor after corridor and see examples of faith and godliness and righteousness and as great as they are and as great as they were they are not worthy or sufficient for us to to pray to or look to for help or for forgiveness they couldn't do it and we have no need to do that that's why It's why the Catholic Church is just such a tragic, sad example of of an artificial Christianity. We don't have any need to do it, and there is no power in any, any human priest or intercessor. And the other thing that we need to understand is that someone like me, a pastor does not have a superior line to God than any of you. You don't need to come to me and say, Pastor, will you pray for me on this and this and whatever it is that you are asking prayer for because somehow God hears me more than he does you. I mean, come to me and tell me to pray for you. I I love to do that. I, I absolutely welcome that. But it's not because I have some mystical power that you don't have because I'm a pastor. No, in Christ, we're all priests. And we all have the ability as a priest to stand in the very presence of Almighty God and bring our needs before Him and intercede for one another. That's what we have in Christ. 
We don't need to run to St. whatever and go in that little booth and pull the curtain. No need for that. 1 Timothy 2.5 lets us know that that's the case. It, it clears up any question. Well, do I need to go to a human intercessor? Nope. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator. I want you to say that. There is between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And his mediatorial role and his mediatorial work continues forever and ever and ever and ever. And as great as our need is, and as great as our weakness is, it will never be too much for Jesus Christ to adequately, sufficiently, fully, perfectly stand on our behalf, intercede for us, and to have that interceding accepted by his Father. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Before I lead us in prayer, um, I just need to ask, is there anyone here today that has failed to come to Jesus Christ and receive him as what we just heard from God's incredible word is so true and necessary, which is to be our Savior and to be our great high priest. That's what he is. But I just wonder, are you here today and you've never actually done that? What you heard by way of testimony from those in the baptism that they have done, which is why they were in the baptismal waters, is that your story? Can you point to a definite time in your life where you said, I abandoned self and I, I stopped trying on my own and I looked to Jesus and I received him as my Savior and my Lord and I know he stands as my great high priest interceding for me. If, is there a point in your life where you've done that? If not, then today is the day. That's why you're here. And I just I encourage you, please, just surrender all that you are to all that he is. And look to him and say, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to be my great high priest. And my friend, if you believe in your heart that he is exactly who he says he is and exactly what the Word of God says he is, the only Savior, the only Lord, and the only great high priest, then at this moment you are assured in, your word, in, in God's Word, you are assured that you are his forever. Is there anybody that would say, yep, that's me? I'd like to pray for you if that's true. I'm not going to call you up here and embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Anyone at all? Anybody? Okay. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us clearly and powerfully and beautifully the person and the work of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the only priest we will ever need because he is the great high priest. Thank you that there is no one higher. No one that came before him is superior to him. No version of a priest that's not even needed now will ever be equal to him. He is absolutely without equal. He is the supreme priest. And in him we find everything we need. 
We're able to be saved to the uttermost. We're able to have eternal intercession. Thank you. May every believer here be be fueled and encouraged by this truth today. And for everyone that is not a believer, for whatever reason, may they be challenged by your Spirit's work to let go of whatever they're holding on to and to surrender all that they are to all that He is. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.